to the Wonder Women of Aviation, a podcast that helps preserve the history of women in aviation and highlights women involved in aviation. Each episode, we meet with women, both in and out of the cockpit, to talk about their passions, experiences, the history of aviation, and how they make an impact. So strap in and hang on tight as we soar through the skies with these Wonder Women of Aviation. Welcome to the Wonder Women of Aviation. My name is Natalia. I am with Carol Hobson. Carol is a 737 United Airlines pilot and she's also an author. Um, I found Carol, which we did, we were talking before the interview, but I found her on our company website flying together and I saw the book, A Pair of Wings. We'll talk about that later in the interview, but that's what really made me reach out to her. I'm like, yes, finally a book about Bessie. Um, so Carol, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And I love to say that United Airlines is a city of 95,000 people. So thank you for reaching out in the city and finding me. And it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I, um, I love the fact that out of 95,000 people, there are hundreds of jobs and lots of opportunity. And you mentioned United and I always and, and very fond of the company that we work for. There's a ton of opportunities and there are some remarkable people with inside of our organization. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just aviation in general, there's so many roles um, like myself included that there are out there for women that, you know, it's the jobs aren't scarce. Um, it's just a matter of just getting out there and finding your way. So we're going to talk about you and your journey and I wanted to start with um, your love of flights and love of aviation, where it started, how old you were, because I know a lot of us got bit by the bug. That's a common, uh, I guess, quote in the industry. I got bit by the bug. So tell me about your bug story and how you got involved in aviation. Well, I love that. And thank you for the question. I must have gotten bitten by the bug while I was lying in the grass. <laughs> I was about four years old. And it's one of my earliest memories. I just remember wanting to be up there in the sky, in those airplanes. And I was really fortunate. My grandparents lived in um, Southern New Jersey. So South Jersey, I know people say Southern California. They don't say Southern New Jersey, but I do. Uh, my grandparents lived there and on the path, right over top of their home was the path to Philadelphia International Airport. So there were planes and they would go over at dinner time and there were peak periods when they would go over and I would lie in the grass and I would be imagining my grandmother would come out with a little dessert or some snack and she would say, you know, where do you think those planes are coming from? And who do you think's on board? How many engines does that plane have? Where are they going? Where in the world are they coming from? And it started not just a love of aviation, but a sense of geography, a sense of where in the world and how in the world and wonder. And I'm very grateful to my grandparents for stoking that and for making that a part of who I am and who I became. And I'll just, you know, kind of sum up or encapsulate it shortly by saying this. I went to college and graduate school and always wanted to be in the front of the airplane. And I spent a lot of time in the back of the airplane as an executive with Foot Locker. Before that, I was a newspaper reporter. I worked for the National Football League. 
then Foot Locker. I was a vice president of training and development from store associates to senior executive, executives, merchandisers, buyers. I created a university there for corporate and for adult learning. I was fascinating. I, I, I loved my job. I had a group. I produced uh, product knowledge videos. I, I had a great time. And I like to say I've never really run from a job. I've always run towards something. And in my case, when I finally got a sense that this was doable, I went and I took one more job. I went to L'Oreal Cosmetics and socked all my money away, quit my job and went to flight school full time in my mid 30s, late 30s. And I love to say that I went from making six figures a year to $17 an hour, and I had never been happier. Now, I mean, I love the fact that you kind of just went for it. You know, that's one thing that many people are afraid of doing. They're like, oh, I'm afraid of change. I'm afraid of doing something different. But you knew deep down inside that, you know, this was for you. This was what or who you were meant to be. So I think that's amazing. And I applaud you for, you know, exploring that, especially later on in your career, because you know, even now with the pandemic, every I, I see this trend, this shift that it, people are changing and they're pursuing their passions. But you, you did that a long time ago. You're like, I'm just going to feel the fear and do it anyways, which is absolutely amazing. Um, so kudos to you. Um, and I want to talk about like, still, we're going to stick on this for a little bit. Your, um, so you started in your 30s flight training. And then you explored, well, what got you into that? So you, your grandmother exposed you, you kind of looked up in the sky. That's something that I can relate to. Um, my mother works for an airline as well. And we lived over one of the major runways here at O'Hare. So I would literally hear the aircraft just flying over and I would look up, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Like questions like, how does that stay in the air and how many people are on board? So I kind of have a similar story. Um, so I just want to talk a little bit more about um, your just like you mentioned the discovery flight. I've been researching you. Talk about that, um, how you got involved in commercial. So so thank you for for that. Um, I'll kind of pick off where pick up where I left off. So I went to college and graduate school. I knew I wanted to do this, but it just seemed so far away. I started uh, dating the man who had become my husband, and he gave me uh, at dinner one night, he said, I want you to tell me what you really want to do. We've gone to undergrad together. And he said, you know, if you, if you talk about what you love to do, who knows, maybe one day that's what you'll do. So I said to him, if I tell you and you laugh at me, you will never, ever see me again. He was like, what in the world do you want to do? So remember, I talked about that four-year-old girl. Well, I had, you know, gone another 30 some odd years and or just about, and yet I had never said the words out loud. So I did. And I said to him, I want to fly an airplane. It was out. It was out of my mouth. It was out of my head. And it felt a little, how can I say, um, it felt like a pipe dream. It felt like, oh my goodness, you know, you're ungrateful. You have all these amazing blessings. You're in this great job. What in the world? How in the world? Well, all that was true, but it also let me know, and I want to go back to something that you said was very important, that while I was happy doing what I was doing, I was afraid of one thing. I wasn't afraid to take the leap. I was afraid that if I didn't, 
I would spend the rest of my life and certainly the rest of my career wondering what if. I have never been a what if kind of kind of person. If there is an opportunity, I think it's one to take, not one to miss. And so I didn't just kind of leap. What I did was I made a plan. So the plan, here's how this unraveled. A couple of weeks later, my husband and I are having dinner and he said, my boyfriend at the time, he said, if I cook you clean, I said, well, of course. And as I picked up the placemat, there was an envelope and inside that envelope were um, tickets or um, uh, 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 coupons or back then is what they called them, um, essentially a gift certificate to go and fly. And I took one discovery flight and that was it. I knew at that point that it was time for me to fish or cut bait. It was time for me to get moving or keep, or keep dreaming. Now, I'd love to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I think a dream is amazing. And I think a dream is important. But the only time I've ever dreamt was either when I was sitting there daydreaming <laughs> or when I was asleep. And I know this, there's a big difference between dreaming and action, right? So I like to say, and I say it often, that a dream and a goal are very different. A goal is a dream with a date on it. And so I put a date on it. And when I quit, I went to flight school full-time. I finished from one flight hour to certified flight instructor in eight months. Um, the weather was a little bad in January and February, so I was a little grounded for a minute. But in any event, by the time that the Women in Aviation Convention rolled around in March and OBAP rolled around, Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals rolled around in August, I had gone to all ATPs, finished up to my CFI, and was instructing. So that summer, June, July, August, September 11th. <laughs> I can, you know, I, I literally can hear that doof in my, in my own ear. And my husband, by this time, by this time we had moved out of Manhattan, we had moved to New Jersey and we did that so that I could fly. And ah, with September 11th and the aftermath that affected every one of us yeah. and what loomed over our industry, my husband said to me, you know, well, I don't know about you, but we're not getting any younger. It's time for kids. And I'm afraid that having children, now that terrified me. Why? Because I had watched my sister, whom I adore. My sister's name is Lorreen Carey. She's mm-hmm. written half dozen books, New York Times bestsellers. I had a great example and a role model in how to write a book and how to be a mom at the same time. But I watched, it was really hard work to do it and do it well. And she did it and made it look effortless. But I did know that there was a lot of effort into how she made it look. And I thought to myself, would I be able to be a good parent? To me, that was a lot more scary than a dark and stormy night in a splendor prop, you know? And I took it very seriously. September 17th, I was pregnant. (laughs) 
you know, many people felt like the sky was falling and yeah. yes, we should procreate to, to make the world a better place. Yes. Fast forward, I gained 140 pounds with my baby. I lost every pound in one year, got pregnant again. I gained 80 with that one. And as three years passed, I had an infant and a toddler and I loved my children in a way that was an unadulterated surprise to me in a way that I was not prepared or in a way that I wasn't, I, I, I knew and I never get into the mommy wars. I call the mommy wars when someone works and someone doesn't. When okay. the person says, oh, you know, I have a nanny for this and a nanny for that. And I'm my best self when I work. I'm my best self when I don't work. I've got my mom who, I, I never get into the mommy wars. Okay. Me, It was best for me to stay home. And I had this infant and toddler and I had a blast. And I like to say that I blinked and a, a year went by two, three, five, seven, eight, 10, 12, 14. And I got to one of those milestone birthdays. Now, all this time I had been writing the book Okay. when my kids were about four and when they were six. And what started me writing the book was in Martha's Vineyard. I went and I saw a biplane and. Oh. I love you right now. <laughs> Ooh, like my whole little brain just lit up. Like, oh my goodness, it doesn't have a top. <laughs> <laughs> it's a propeller. <laughs> oh my goodness. Now I was used to propeller because for those 14 years, I never was uh, flying. I, would, I did yeah. mommy jobs, right? I instructed, okay. I worked at CAE, I did right seat. I like to okay. say um, it was an amazing intro to the crew environment. And I flew okay. a Citation Sovereign. So it was, they gave me a neat opportunity. I love the people at CAE. It was wonderful. Mm -hmm. But I did mommy jobs. So when my kids would run off to school, I would run off to the airport. I would wake every, I would go to bed. Usually I beat my kids asleep, 8.30, right? You know, eight o'clock. Yeah. Mommy, finish the story. <laughs> well, as, as my children got older, I would wake to one of them reading the end of the story. And at 8.30, I was, you know, sleeping because every morning without an alarm, I would wake at three to go start writing my book. Then at seven, it was time to get my husband out the door, kids out the doors, you know, and it was time to go to work, right? right? So my kids would be at school and I would go to the flight school and blah, blah, blah. And it was this amazing, amazing existence. But I turned 50 and there was something about that number that, you know, it, it's many things, right? It's a half century. Mm -hmm. You got more time, you know. <laughs> behind you <laughs> young. thank you my love thank you for that but truly right it's a marker it's a it's a it's a milestone yes. and you can hear it 50 oh shoot and you know I mean I I look good I felt okay I felt great I, I my health was good my I got my weight good I managed I controlled within the inch of my life, the things I could control, but there were things that I couldn't. Mm -hmm. And that milestone let me know that it was time to move and it was time to go. And it, that date that I had set in my head, 
So meanwhile, the book was moving along. I had probably three big attempts and probably about 17 rewrites. But what happened was I had started the book as an omniscient narrator. And for two or three years, I told the story. Yeah, it was okay, but I couldn't get close enough. And then I wrote it as though her best friend, who was an amalgam of women I met in my research. Um, she's everything from my best friend from when I was three, Rosalind, to one of my dearest friends, Suzanne Douglas, um, to, you know, oh my God, all of my friends, my college roommate, um, Bessie Coleman went to college for a semester, my dearest friend and my hairdresser. Um, she was all of those women, but she was the women that I met in the research. And so, I had her daughters kicking a ball around the garage and poof, they open up a, a, a footlocker and the moths come out of her journals. And so then I spent another two or three years writing the book as Norma, her best friend, but I still couldn't get close enough. And so when I went to training for Express Jet Airlines, which was my first airline, I put the book aside because I had to. Yeah. And in the back of my brain, the book marinated, it, 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 it simmered, mm -hmm. just like a good stew. Makes sense. I, I thought about it when I was in the simulator, when I was on OE, operating experience, right? I thought about it when I was in hotels for the first time in years since when I had been a corporate executive, right? I thought about the first time I had gotten in an airplane, the discovery flights, it was all there percolating the time when I saw that biplane and realized, oh my gosh, whoa, I mean, you got to have some chutzpah to get in this thing and turn it upside down. Yeah. When you do that, the oil pressure turns to zero, which means, girl, you better go ahead and flip that darn thing around. Uh, how, how tenacious Bessie Coleman was. She learned to fly in France because no one would teach a black woman in the United States in 1920 how to fly. In fact, she wouldn't have fly long before that. But so the year she comes to Chicago is 1915, 1920. She between 15 and 20, I'm gonna say about 17, she starts looking for flight schools, a man named Robert Abbott, who became a mentor and a friend, a self-made millionaire, a black man in the teens helped her and he rode away to programs in the East Coast and on the West Coast and no one would teach a black woman to fly. So she learns French at night when she's in her late 20s and goes to France to learn how to fly. My commitment to her was to get this book out by June 15th, 2021 because she got her brevet, her French Federation Aeronautique Internationale license on June 15, 1921. Her brevet number is 18310. I have it like tattooed in my brain. And so all of that marinated. I said, I have to write this book as a first person. And in doing so, something just like seeing the biplane became very clear to me. She was the only woman in the world to marry two remarkable phenomena the dawn of aviation and the dawn of the great migration of African-Americans from the South to the North. She did that. 
I like to say that those were lines of longitude and she bent them and made them intersect and becomes the only person who can do that. She comes back to the US, she's a hundred years ahead of her time. She comes back over to Paris, Berlin and Amsterdam in order to be an aerobatic pilot, in order to be a barnstormer. She comes back to the US, flies a Curtis Jenny with an OX-5 engine years before most Americans own automobiles and even years before many Americans saw airplanes in the sky because most of the war, well, the war was fought over in Europe. And so here she is 100 years ahead of her time doing what she's doing, being tenacious, leading on the bleeding edge, doing what she had a purpose to do. And lucky me, here I am flying the airplane for United Airlines. For me, the purpose became very clear. 100 years ago, 100 probably if we involved every single black woman in the major airlines, we'd have 100. United has the most and we need more. And here's the reason. So we talked a little bit about United, what a great place it is. United launched 88. Yes. 5,000 pilots by the end of this decade. Half they want to be women and people of color. Why? We are an untapped resource. It's a business initiative, a business imperative, a make sense, smart move. Mm -hmm. My hat goes off to all of the executives, to our union, to the people who work together to make Aviate happen. So it's aligned with my mission. I'll stop there. No, it totally makes sense. I mean, you've hit like a lot of different like key words that I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, like that I'm very passionate about myself. So the story of Bessie, I mean, I didn't know who Bessie was with the exception of Bessie Coleman Drive at O'Hare. So there's a road named Bessie Coleman Drive. And like, I've been working at the airport for over 20 years. I'm like, who is Bessie Coleman? And it wasn't until I started getting into, so my husband is an aerobatic air show pilot and he flies a biplane, which is very funny that you say that. I'm like, yes, a biplane. So he flies a Pitts S1S biplane and, oh, yes. <laughs> wait, a minute, yeah. wait, wait, wait a minute, where's my Pitts plane? It should be upside down. Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, he does the loops, the rolls, the turns. So, I mean, I'm like, oh my gosh, like he still makes my heart jump out of my chest. Have you, like, have you flown with him? Well, it's a one-seater, so um, I, ideally we would like a two-seat Pitts and S2, but um, hopefully down the pipeline. It's one or the two-seater. Yeah, it's the one-seater. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, Pitts is near and dear to me because that aircraft in itself is such a beautiful aircraft and the history behind it. And I didn't know that Bessie, well, I don't know, did Bessie fly a Pitts or? She didn't fly oh, a Pitts. Okay. She flew a Curtis Jenny. When she was in Europe, she flew okay. an airplane called a Quadrone. And a Quadrone, the, I know yeah were oh my goodness they were the most amazing at their time and proliferate i mean they they made more airplanes during world war one so yes. when you think of the history and and some of the most um agile and lethal airplanes so you know i learned so much history throughout all right. this. there is so um, much history i want to get back to the pits in one second oh, sure. <laughs> i want to share, share this with you so the quadrone so she goes over to france she's all set she's gonna go and 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 take this course 
and she shows up at the flight school, which Robert Abbott has gotten her an entree to. And when she shows up, the guy comes to the front. And this is all fact. And the reason why it's a historical fiction is although I parallel her life, we don't have conversations. We don't know, I like to say, the glue between the events. So I create the glue, but the skeleton is hers. Okay. I just, you know, put a little drape on it. And I want to come back to two things, pits and that whole notion of dress. So she goes over to Europe and she she's all ready. She's all sat. And this fellow says this to her. It's so terrible, but we just had an accident. Two women died and France cannot have their mothers broken up on the ground. So I'm so sorry, but we won't be accepting any more women. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding? Three years of learning a language, mortgaging everything that you own. And now, no, I'm so sorry, but you can't come in. Oh my God. Here's where her grit is. Not only did she get there, not only won't she leave, but she manages to get to the best flight school in France and she shows up. Now, in my research, I thought, oh my goodness. All right. And listen, spoiler alert. Okay. There's still so much in this book. Okay. <laughs> Trust me. I, I okay. might nothing away. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> can't read it either. And when you do, please leave a review on Amazon. I will. Um, or Goodreads. Um, they love that. And I love it because then I know what you think. Um, so she gets to this other flight school and it's not flying over the mustard fields in France. It's flying on the beach. So that meant, and when I went to France, right, I've literally, I bought a pair of shoes very similar to hers. I got my weight to where she was. I managed to do, to go almost every place where she had been. And so when I went to the north of France, I realized that she flew on the beach where Quadrone designed, built, fixed, flew. And that's how they did it back then. It wasn't like one person flew it, another person built it, another person. There was this integrated loop. And so she goes there and she flies with some of the best designers, fixers. Mm, I did not know that. On the planet. And then my brain was like, (laughs) just like when I saw that biplane. So she's flying on the beach. That means she has to understand the moons and the tides. There are eight moons. And they pull the water. And so when that happens, your runway disappears underneath the seawater. You really got to understand when to come and when to go. Right. When to fly, you know, and, and when to wait. And so, you know, a go or no go decision, as we talk about in flying, became even more imperative. Oh, yeah. It's life or death. <laughs> it's life or death. And so... She's flying around these little squiggly things. You know, the, the wings of the biplane, most biplanes are made out of cloth, shellacked with nitrate, dope, the equivalent of nail polish to make it as stiff and firm as cardboard. And so here she is in this world, very vulnerable, very alone. And that's what incited me. Like, I would have to keep going with this. I could not let it go. And then as the time went on, you know, I told my husband, I'll write this book in six months. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) 
five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years, I realized that my then commitment to her was to get this book out on June 15th when she got her pilot certificate in France. And so things took on much bigger significance in my life, as well as in the production of this work. You said something very, very critical. So you drove by Bessie Coleman Drive and didn't know who, who she was. I went to college. I went to an Ivy League graduate school. I was well-read, arguably. I had never heard of Bessie Coleman. I was 34 years old. When she died, she was 34 years old. So I learned of who she was at the same age in which she died. I no longer call them coincidences. They were convergences. And how I learned about Bessie Coleman through another woman. So I met a woman in aviation convention. And I met a woman named Jenny Beatty who gave me a gift, a coffee cup. And in the coffee cup, on one side, on the coffee cup was one side was this picture. That's why it's on the book. And on the other side were two paragraphs about her life. I had never heard of her. Now, remember, that's going back 20 some odd years. So the internet was not as robust as it is now. But what I did know was that I could not let her story be a secret anymore. So by the time we're done, honey, with book, movie, 100 Black Women in Flight School, I want everybody to know her name. Mm -hmm. I know Amelia's name and I love Amelia Hart. Right. But I, I love her. I, I, I didn't know. Yeah. I it. I didn't know. Why didn't I know that much about her life? Back to the pits for a second. <laughs> My first spin instructor was Ginger Banta. And when I had gone to flight school, I got to find Ginger. And you know what? I'm going to have to send her this interview because I love me some Ginger Banta. I'll interview her too. <laughs> she is amazing. And let me tell you a little bit about Ginger. So I'm going to flight school. I have all male instructors. I had some wonderful instructors. I had some instructors who weren't so great. Fine. So what? Okay. My spin instruction is scheduled for whatever. And I show up, I'm all, you know, I'm early, I'm sitting there, I'm waiting anxiously. I've got my flight bag. I've got on my big boots. I've got, you know, my coat and my coat and my other coat, and my coat. And Ginger shows up and she has two things in her hand. In fact, she's holding both of them in one hand. She's got her headset and she's got a can of Coke. She's like, come on, you ready to go? I'm ready to go do our spin instruction. I said, you're my spin instructor? She said, I am and you're my spin student, let's go. And we went up to about 10,000 feet over, I wanna say we were, I want to say we we're in Fort Myers. I have to look at my logbook. In any event, this was a program where we went all over the country. So, you know, sometimes I couldn't remember where the heck we were, where, where we were going to go take our lessons and our flight tests, et cetera. Anyway, we got up to about 10,000 feet. And she said to me, now, listen, here's what you're going to see. You ready? I said, I'm ready. You know, like I had taken off one or two of my coats. I was trying to get rid of all these heavy bags because I'm looking at her with this headset and the coat. Now she put the headset on and she's consumed the coat. There's nothing in her way. There was nothing in her way. And that, that was another one of those aha moments, right? She didn't need nothing to fly that airplane except for her ingenuity, her gumption, and a nice set of thumbs. And Ginger said this to me. You're going to see ocean land, ocean land, ocean land. That makes sense. 
<laughs> but she says, I only want you to see it three times. That's enough of that. <laughs> One, two. <laughs> yeah. Got it. And that's what we did. And we were at 7,000 feet. She said, do it again. Ocean land, ocean land, ocean land. She said, that's enough. <laughs> we were at 4,000 feet. Wow. I learned so much from my first female flight instructor. Wow. She was just, you know, she was badass. Oh, yeah. And let me go ahead and add this. Ginger, I don't know how old she was because she was ageless. But just listen to her speak. My guess was, although she did not look it, she did not look at all with her little red hair, little pixie haircut and her little Coke and her little, and everything about her was rose. Everything about her was gingery and spicy gingery, ginger. Ginger makes sense. <laughs> say she may have been 60 something, but she was just, she was ageless. Okay. She was ageless because she loved what she did and she was good at it. And she was fun and she taught me that flying an airplane was not all that crap. I had my bag. I need all that. Right. Yeah, okay. I needed a flashlight. Yeah, okay. I needed my pilot certificate. That could just fit in a little teeny weeny wallet, right? But I didn't need all that to fly an airplane. Automation. Like, I love automation. It's great. It's very specific. Mm-hmm. But when the hits the fan, we need to fly the plane. Change your talk. Wow. <laughs> Find her and send her this tape, Joe. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that she took you up and did it. Yeah, well, obviously it was forced spin trading or what was it called? Upset trading? Back then, honey, it was called spin <laughs> training. And we use, we use an airplane that they used to spin all the time and they called it the Smurf. Poor little thing was like this and droopy. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> I it now. It had been spun. <laughs> Wow. And it was, uh, if I recall, it was blue. So they called it the Smurf honey. And it just, you know, anyway. Husband's plane is blue. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but honey, he flies a pits. Oh, yeah. oh, 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 okay. Thank you for all this. So Ginger Banta flew a pits. Oh, oh she's the airplane that she flew when she wasn't, you know, teaching spin training to us, you know, sillies with our, our flight bags and our survival gear, right? Right. Thank you for that. Tied us <laughs> back together. A memory. I triggered a memory. You did. So you touched oh. on a lot of things here. Um, going back to Bestie really quick. Um, I want to talk about the whole like being a pioneer and getting into the whole barnstorming. Um, I think the fact that she was a minority, which that's something that we definitely, because um, you hear about Amelia Earhart, you hear about I don't know if you've heard about Poncho Barnes. Um, The fact that these women, like I'm just hearing about them now. So I want to applaud you again for telling Bessie's story because, and and telling it in in a voice that we can all relate to because I mean, I don't know how many times I've I've fallen asleep to all these old movies, which are great. I'm like, I, I think the fact that we need to bring back history and the fact that you're bringing it in a way that's engaging and that can speak to a, a different vaster audience is amazing so kudos to you because I, I'm amazed at all these women and what they've done and I'm like why haven't I heard about them um I'm researching the women air force service pilots I'm like why didn't I hear about them the 99s why didn't I hear about them so 
Um, there's movies that are coming out for, you know, them. Um, there's books that have been written recently that I've just been just absorbing all of that right now. So I'm on this whole different journey and being a journalist, I'm like, oh, yes, finally, there's a story out there that I can relate to and that interests me. So again, I applaud you, kudos to you. Thank you for finally telling the story that I think gets lost. And, and that's a shame, but you know what? It's never too late. So thank you for oh, doing it. <laughs> I love that. And I love that, 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 that note that it's never too late. Here's what I know. Bessie Coleman was before the wasps. Here's what I know about the wasps. The wasps were amazing. There were not only, so, so let's go back. So Bessie Coleman flew World War I airplanes. The wasps flew World War II airplanes. Yes. They were never militarized. What does that mean? That means because they were never actionized, because they were never militarized, they never received medical benefits, dental benefits, the version of the GI Bill that existed for people who came home from the war to build homes, to be educated for their children to be in school. They never received any of those things. Mm -hmm. So here's Bessie, 20 years before the WASPs, ever started. So not only was she never militarized, not only was she, um, I mean, you know, she had to go to another country to learn how to fly. And so the wasps, what I find fascinating about them is that they were very, very resourceful. Many of them taught, they were the instructors. Yeah. Um, and being a journalist, what I love about having that in my background, my husband says that either an engineer, a second language or writing skills, having one, two or three of those things makes you invaluable. Mm -hmm. We talked about it earlier. Today, they call it a pivot. You're right. And you said it. When I did it, did it honey, they want a name for it. People were just like, girl, you crazy. You didn't really do that good job. I mean, with all that money, you're going to leave all that on the table. Yeah. And my mind told me that money follows passion. It's not the other way around. You don't get money and then be passionate about it. No, 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 no. If you do something and you do it well, and you're passionate about it, the money will come. And it has. And I firmly believe that and like to preach that and like to be an example of that. And like we talked about in terms of pivoting, right? So today that's what we call it. But guess what? That's what Bessie did all the time. When things got blocked, she went another way. When things weren't working, she fixed it another way. I was in the coach's office the other day and there was a sign and it said, you know, there's a very famous line where Bessie says, every no leads me closer to a yes. And the sign in his office said, no means next opportunity. And so every time she got to know, like, okay, you, you're not going to fly in the United States. Okay, well, I'm going to learn French. That means that you have to go over there to fly. Okay. We, you know, so off she goes to France to learn how to fly. And then when she gets there, the flight school she's going to go to, the people have died. So, oh, sorry, you can't do that. Okay. I'm going to cry for a minute and get my act together. All right, I'm together now. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to learn from these people. They're the best in the world. What? I mean, that is belief in self. That is resilience. And there's 
a lot of work being done right now on resilience, right? And I picked up a piece the other day, Harvard Business Review had a, a whole series of essays on resilience. One thing that is common to all of them. It's another research doing a lot of research on nurses um, and doctors who've made it through the pandemic. What is it about resilience that makes people keep trying, keep fighting, keep working? What is it? And the research is that it's not some, you know, hokey kind of meta science, it's real science. And the brain, almost at the hippocampus level, has repetitive things that create and connect synapses. And then those synapses are laced literally with experience. And then you layer in things like optimism and people who are optimistic and who keep trying somehow seem to make it through things that block. Bret Hart, president of our company, calls them trap doors, right? And so some people get stymied by a trap door. They fall through it, they never come out. But there are others and they start scaling the wall and the sides of the wall are slippery. So they route around in the dark and they find a stool and they heave themselves up and they see what they saw before and they avoid it because it's a trap door. Mm -hmm. And there's another one which they haven't seen before and they fall through, but this time they carry a rope and they get themselves out. Not they pull themselves up by their bootstraps with no honey, they get the heck out that hole. Climb out. <laughs> they climb out. And so embedded in her success was this notion of resilience, this notion of comeback. Spoiler alert, in the book, there are five different books, essentially. Mm -hmm. And we start out with an accident that happens in 1923. It's a real accident. She survives. The longest, strongest bone in the human body 100 and some odd years ago is broken. Her, her, her femur, it's broken in half. That means it had to be repaired. That means she had to rehab. 100 years ago, before we had fancy machines and protocols and all that stuff. So she did that. And she comes back and she flies, she walks again, and then she flies again. And then what happens after that? Well, she goes on to barnstorm around the country. Spoiler alert, second book is <laughs> is kind of coming of age in Chicago when she moves to Chicago, mm -hmm. early years in Chicago, 1915. The second book is Learning to Fly in France. The third book is um, Barnstorming. And then the fourth or the fifth, if you count the accident, is Comeback. Hot dog. Now that gave me structure. I have an agent. Her name is Marie Brown, lovely woman. And she would, we would go to dinner, excuse me, to lunch. Um, I would call it lunch, brunch, in some of her Harlem haunts. And one day we were sitting there. I said, Marie, I can't, please, honey, I can't take another rewrite. I'm about to lose my, my natural mind. Dear God. I can understand. <laughs> just please tell me what I need to do so I can do it and stop this bloody rewrite. <laughs> and she said, Carol, she said, it's hidden in plain sight. I said, what? Oh, I hate when you talk to me like that. You don't understand the riddle. She said, you were a newspaper reporter for how long? I said, seven years, Marie. 
I was a police reporter. I worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer, not the Enquirer, the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I worked for the Bergen Record as a, as a police reporter, one of the first police reporters with a laptop, honey. I, I, what, what, what about it? And she said, hidden in plain sight is that newspapers were the social media of the day yeah. when she was around. Go back, dig again. Mm. Follow her through the newspapers. Go through the archives, and, yeah. Which I had done, but she said, let them be your guide. And here's what she said to me. Here was her analogy. She said, take one of them pretty dresses. Cause I, girl, I love clothes. It's, um, it's my weakness, love clothing. She said, take one of those pretty dresses that you like and hang it on a hanger. Take this story and use the newspaper headlines as, as a hanger to hang the story on. So that every time, see, look at your, I saw your eyes go up. Your, okay? so I like that, time, that's a writer in me. <laughs> every time there's a newspaper article, follow that, follow what happened. So when they report that she had her first show, what was that like? What led up to it? How, who was at the show? How many people were there? What did she do at the show? Report for me. Take me there. Let me be a fly on the inside of her airplane. And don't let me buzz out now when you do the loop. Be in there. Hold me there. Don't let it go. I was like. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I can relate being a writer myself. I'm holding on to so many works that I'm like, when am I going to finish this? But if that makes sense, bringing Take the one. <laughs> I know I'm like, my brain's all over the place, but um, just bringing that reader into her world. Like I consider myself to be a method writer. So I have to be in that moment. So that totally makes sense to me. You're speaking my language. It was hard because by this time, by the time she and I had that conversation, I was on rewrite number 14 or 15. I told you about the three different avenues I had pursued, but here's what was really hard. What was really challenging was that I thought I was finished and it was a good book. It was a good book, but it wasn't excellent. It wasn't excellent. It, it, and so while I was doing the rewrite, I was buying a piece of furniture in the store and the lady who, ha who happened to help me was Indian, East Indian. And she was from the uh, North of India. Her parents were from the South and the North, but anyway, she was born there and grew up here. And I started telling her about it. She said, let me tell you something. She said, that's the story of, Indian woman. I was telling this to a woman who was on my layover in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And she said to me in Spanish, Mira, amor, este es la cuenta de todo el mundo aquí en Mexico. It's the story of everyone here in Mexico. I was talking to a woman who spoke Mandarin in the restaurant where I took my kids. And she said, That's the story of every woman in mainland China. What? So then wow. I was like, you know, ooh. <laughs> that's something to hold on to, mm -hmm. to tell this story so that that woman in the furniture store, the lady in the restaurant, the woman in the hotel, so that, you know, 
my audience for whom this book was written. I used to say, eh, it's 24 to 54. And um, I have a lady who works with me. She's amazing. Her name is Candace Williams Brown. And so we were looking at, okay, well, you know, let's, let's create five different profiles like Malik and Candace and Jill and, and um, uh, you know, your persona. Yeah. Right, right. Like, so let's create these five different personas. And then what I said, I called her up one day. I said, honey, you can keep those if you want to, because that's good from a marketing perspective. We need to speak right. to Malik. We need to speak to Sarah. We need to speak to Jill. We need to speak to a young woman in West Philadelphia, where I'm from. Yeah. We need to speak to that woman in that hotel in Mexico. Guess what? Her life could not be contained in a small box from age 24 to 54, women, men. I mean, it defies labels. She defied a box, a convenient box to put her in. Right. She defied all of those things. And so in that was a lesson for me. I knew I loved her. I knew she was, you know, a proverbial badass. I knew that. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to make her, and so this leads me into a little bit about why this is, why there's something in this book for everyone. I wanted a love story for her because I know somebody that gorgeous. Oh yeah. She's that beautiful. passionate, that fine, like we say in West Philly. Fine. <laughs> I knew that she had love affairs, but I knew that they, that they were contained because she was a proper Southern woman and that her, the love that she gave was risky for her to give because I knew that she felt vulnerable because here she was out here in this world. And in order to tell that story, I had to make you the reader feel her vulnerability. I had to make you feel what it was like for her to be out there literally alone yeah. and yet to rejoice because what she did she did for the love of it yeah and so there's all of that richness there's all of that complexity there's all of that depth in this woman yeah and she is, in many ways, our mothers, our sisters, our sheroes. To me, she's one of the first superheroes. Yeah. She truly is. <laughs> I mean, just hearing about her, I'm like, I've learned so much and just talking to you. And I like the fact that you said everyone has, or every woman that you've met or talked to on a layover, wherever has the same story. And you know, I, I have the same story, you have the same story. So it's like, we need to talk about those stories and our struggles and how we overcame those struggles. And I love the fact that you're doing it and you're a living example as well, um, that you can do it regardless of what obstacles are in your way, how old you are, what background you come from. Um, and we're getting the near of our, our talk because I could talk to you forever. <laughs> But I wanted to ask you, what piece of advice would you have for those women that are, you know, just learning to fly or starting something new in their life or transitioning from something that, you know, they're used to, and now I'm going to pursue my passion. What advice can you give them 
um, to just not be afraid. So I'll say three things. One, I'm okay with your being afraid. I'm afraid sometimes, not often, but I am afraid. And when I am, I know that courage is the difference in people who are afraid and, and they, they wither. And courage is not not being afraid, but it's acting in spite of your fear. Now, that's grandiose. But if we broke that down, here's what I know. When I am afraid, I seek help. I have an amazing mentor at United Airlines, Captain Ray Evans. When I was <clears throat> taking the course for the Boeing 737, I mean, the footprint was tiny. It was a footprint of a toddler for a big grown blankety blank man. And that's how the program was, which meant you move quickly. And if you need help, if you're afraid, get help, ask for it. I love General Stacy Harris, who said to me once, she said this to me, I said, what's the difference in how you've been successful? And she said this, she said, I made it through the Air Force program when others didn't, because to a person, I asked for help, yeah. asked for help. There's no shame in asking for help, but there is shame in just kind of retreating and going away. Don't go away. We need you. Two resilience. I talked about it. Optimism. Be optimistic. Stop the blah, 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 blah. Oh, everything's horrible. Seek the good. Find it. Three, get up off the couch. I said in the very beginning of this, that dreaming is amazing. I love to dream. I love to daydream. Mm -hmm. I love to dream in my sleep. But I know this. When it's time to get up, it's time to act. So think before you act, write it down. On your little dream board, whether it goes on your refrigerator or in your car or on a pin or in your pocket or in your wallet, write down no more than three things because I don't know about you, but honey, I can't remember more than three sometimes. <laughs> write down three things. Book, movie, 100 Black Women in Flight School by the year 2035. Create a little vision statement for yourself. What does that look like? 12 words, 16 words, no more than 20, 12 to 20 words. I want to, I will, I am committed to. I am committed to. So right there, there goes four. Yeah. You only got another eight to 10 left. And fill them in. Every word is meaningful. I can't tell you how to operate or how to go about life, but those are some things that have helped me to pivot. Those are some things that have helped me to survive some really difficult challenges. And I'll leave you with this. During my United Airlines interview, I was interviewed by a man at the time who has become a mentor and an incredible part of my network, Captain Joe Cook. And he asked me this question. He said, I want you to tell me about a thing or tell me a time when. And I was like, yeah, okay, I got this. I practice all my questions. I got this. You were faced with one of the most difficult physical challenges. How did you overcome it? And what lessons did you learn from it? Girl, my lips started quivering. That is a good question. That's a good question. Because it makes you 
be honest. And it's not something that's rehearsed because I wasn't thinking about answering anything that honest, that authentic. And I told him about when I was hit by a car and I was 15 years old, right before I went to college, my right ankle, knee and hip were all broken. And I sat on a couch for the entire summer. I've never sat down that long my whole life. And here's what I knew. I had an experience to compare to Bessie. I, I love the comparisons with Bessie, but I, I am not she. I have modern conveniences at my fingertips. Mm -hmm. I have the amazing support of a spouse. But I can relate to her life because I had something that made me broken. And I had a choice. I could stay on that couch. I'd get my butt up mm -hmm. and I could get moving. And I chose the latter. It made me cry, but I can wipe tears away. Nobody ever died from crying. That's what I used to tell my kids. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. Cry and dry them. Yeah. Get moving. Get moving. Wow. Get wow. You truly are an inspiration and a true Wonder Woman of aviation. Before I let you go, first of all, how can they get more information about your book, A Pair of Wings? Where can they learn more about you? And finally, your initiative. How can they support your initiative? You said you want to get 100 female Black pilots. Yes, I love you for that question. Thank you so much. I get lost <laughs> my stories and I, I need to be motivated. So let me share this. So my website is called carol, C-A-R-O-L-E, Hobson.com. Um, my mother, my grandmother was a Carol Lombard fan. So my grandmother named my mother Carol and my sister named me after my mother. So carolhobson.com, you can go there to do, to order the book, to learn more about me, um, all of that. That's, that's there. Okay. You can buy the book on Amazon or you can buy it in your indie bookstores. Wherever you buy your books, you can buy my book. Um, and please leave me on um, Amazon. Um, have some sort of review or let me know what you think. Let me know if my book inspired you, um, your own journey. Give me a paragraph about it on, on Amazon. Sometimes just sitting and writing that will get you started on what you have to do. Okay. Cause remember I talked about write down those three things, start there if you want. I mean, that can be your practice, right? Okay. So that's, so that's there. 100 Black Women in Flight School. So I started an, an initiative called the Jet Black Foundation. My sister gave me the name. I love that name, Jet Black. Okay, so here's what it is. My goal is to get 100 Black women in the flight school by the year 2035. Why Black women? I'm going to use big round numbers, easy pilot math. 100,000 people fly for a living. On a good day, 5 to 7% are women. Of that, that makes it easy now, 7,000. Of that number, two to 3% are African-American. Of that number who fly for the major airlines were less than 100. 150, if you include um, corporate and uh, military and major and regional. But it doesn't matter. It's, it's less than a percent. So I want to change that narrative. Think about those numbers. We're 100 years since she got her brevet. We're less than 100. We're 100 years out. And yet we're less, we have, there's something compelling. We have, I got to pick up where she left off. When she came back from um, Paris, Berlin and Amsterdam, she said, you know, if it was this hard for me to get mine, I need to help others. And here I am. I feel the same way a hundred years later. If it was this hard for me to get mine, I need to help others. So the Luke Weathers Flight Academy 
which spawned from the Organization of Black Aerospace Professionals in 2018, June 18, 2018. What's so amazing about that flight school is that it is a 501c3. So it's one third the cost of a for-profit flight school. We can get a person from zero to hero, as I like to say, zero to shiro, <laughs> in about a year and for about $50,000. Now, if we do that, and that woman pays for the first 8,000, which you, as you well know, if you're in Chicago and LA or Atlanta or go out west to, to excuse me, LA or New York East, you're gonna find that that number is closer to 15 to 20,000. But in Olive Branch, Mississippi, which is right on the border of Memphis, Tennessee, we can get people through for much less cost because A, it's, 50, it's 501c3 and B, costs are less, right? Great weather most of the year. so. If we can get somebody through for 50K, eight of it is the private pilot. And that young woman pays for her first step. It's meaningful and belongs to her. I have to go out and I'm committed. It's going to start in July and in, in, uh, November. Like, you know, my brain's saying, okay, absorb this, then that. Yeah. <laughs> um, we'll start with Giving Tuesday. And um, it's, it's on the website now where 501c3 status is pending. But here's the thing. We're going to go out and raise probably close to 4.2 million dollars that's 42,000 times 100 and then another mill and a half so close to seven million dollars over the course of 14 15 years and that gets us to a number somewhere around seven thousand seven million excuse me or might be north of that and and that's the initiative and that's why that's the big why and the how behind it and the why Luke Weathers. And OVAP is just a phenom. It's been around 45 years. And I like to say I'm the house that, you know, OVAP built. It's, it's been my place of growth for 20 years. Um, so that's it. That is amazing. You truly are amazing and inspirational. I am looking forward to A, reading the book. So I'm gonna go purchase mine right now, no joke on Amazon. And I will leave that review. And I'm definitely going to continue to follow you on your journey. Obviously, we work for the same airline, so I will be contacting you. And I have some women that could absolutely, I, I think that they could learn and grow from your story and your experiences. So there's a lot of women that have reached out to me for help. And I'm like, I think I feel you could be able to help them as well. So you enlightened me. Oh, you're a sweetheart. We, we help where we're at, you yes. know? We really do. And so part of what we're doing at OBAP is, you know, the young women who finished their private pilot, I have them mentor middle schoolers. And then for the young women who are in their commercial, guess what? You can mentor the people who were doing private pilot. At some point, it becomes not just about me, right? Because part of that vision is to, is to invest. And the dividend is that young woman now pulling somebody else up. Yeah. The reason why we flight instruct when we're so green, I mean, I got a flight instruction job and the ink <laughs> still blowing on my, it's still drying on my certificate, right? CFI. Well, okay, let me see that certified flight instructor. And what happens is you teach when you're green, but because you're teaching, it's, you have to understand it at such a profound level that you say, all right, you know what? I got this. I understand why we do spin training. I understand why we do. That totally makes sense. And I'm working my way up to learning and getting my privates, but I'm going to just continue going slow. I mean, I still have time. I'm only 40 years young, so. 
something definitely in my future. Um, so all the women that I've talked to, including yourself, have definitely reassured me and inspired me to just mm. do it. So for those of you listening, absolutely just do whatever you're passionate about. Um, obviously, she's a prime example of just pursuing your passions and dreams. So thank you. Thank you for joining the Wonder Woman of Aviation. Make sure that you go on Amazon, buy her book, follow her, go on her website, and we'll talk to you next time. Wonder Woman of Aviation, she and you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others or post about it on social media. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. And the wonders you can do.